Hello and welcome to the Muni Lowdown. My name is Paul Graves and I'm the managing editor for Debtwine Municipals. Joining me today are my colleagues, Mary Ellen Ty, our assistant editor, and our head of research, Greg Clark. Welcome to everyone. Our deputy editor, partner in crime, Seth Brumby, is not with us this week. Sources tell me he has a birthday coming up. I think that's why he's missing in action. Happy birthday, Seth, because I know you'll be listening to this while you're out. Of course he is. Everyone's listening. Um, but the big news of the week, probably just across uh, the municipal landscape, has been the announcement uh, by Amazon of the HQ2 finalists, 20 cities that are in the running to get this second headquarters. Um, we're recording on Thursday afternoon, January 18th. This news came out yesterday, and there's a lot of buzz about it. Uh, Mary Ellen, Greg, I'll let you guys both weigh in. Maybe we'll start with you, Greg, in terms of your thoughts on this, and where do you see it going? The the list, Paul, I think included most of the cities that people thought would be on the final list, places like Austin. It also included uh, maybe a couple outliers, places like Newark, uh, Philadelphia, places like that. It'll be interesting to see what uh, – what Amazon takes into account. I'm, I'm guessing that in their, when they make the final decision, they'll have some kind of tax analysis about, uh, I would certainly like to see that anyway, about what prompted their decision. You know, from state to state, every group of cities has a different kind of taxing structure, and it'll be interesting to see not only how that affected Amazon's decision, but the incentives, and there has to be some, the incentives that uh, the the winning city will give to Amazon, and which in turn, of course, will influence how much of an economic boon it is to the winning city. Mary Ellen, do you think do you think Amazon already knows where they're planning uh, to choose? Do you think this is all just uh, a big marketing gimmick, or what do you think? I think Paul, that Amazon has. I think Amazon had a sh short list before they even asked for questions. I think that there were only so many cities they were really going to consider. And I hadn't thought this actually at all. I sort of thought that this was a genuine horse race um, up until we saw the finalist list. And um, of the 20 locations listed, three are basically Washington, D.C., um, that just seems odd to me. If you don't, if you don't think you're gonna, you know, pick somewhere, why would you have three in the exact same location? Um, Newark and New York City are not all that far apart. Uh, it just seemed like maybe they already had some ideas of where they wanted to be. I just thought of an analogy. Um, Amazon's process has, I think, built up a fair amount of goodwill throughout the country. It's kind of like the NCAA basketball tournament. You, know, you get 64 teams from all over the country. Nobody knows who's going to win. And there's a lot of interest, certainly in the first first weekend or two, about uh, about what's going to happen. So, Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I guess the other thing in terms of for our listeners, I mean, we're clearly focused on distress credits and stress credits. But there are a few that we actually cover now. Uh, that are amongst the finalists. And, 
mentioned one already, Newark. There's Dallas um, because they've had their issues with pensions. There's Philly. There's Pittsburgh. There's Chicago. Um, <laughs> you know, we can't forget them. Uh, there's Los Angeles who has some challenges that they're dealing with. So um, there's clearly a possibility that this um, selection could change their fortunes but I also note that Boston is on this list, and while GE and Amazon are in two different situations fiscally, uh, you know, there was great fanfare when GE decided to move to Boston, and then in November, GE announces that they're going to undergo some significant layoffs. They announce that they're postponing, at least for two years, the new headquarters they were building here in the Boston area, where I am. Uh, so, you know, uh, I guess we'll see. Um, but uh, to your point, Greg, is you know, it, it, it probably depends on just what what are these cities or what is the eventual winner giving up in order to get Amazon to come there, and is it worth it in the long run? Because, um, you know, going back to the GE example, would Boston have been ag- as aggressive in their bid if they knew this was coming up in terms of, you know, uh, layoffs and um, postponements? And then you had a couple of days ago uh, GE saying that they're going to split up. So that's clearly going to have some effect. So that's a, that's guess- a very good it's a very good point, Paul. And, and, and with the six cities you mentioned – uh, Chicago, Dallas, L.A., Newark, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh. Um, the there's always going to be someone, even in the strongest city, strongest financial, financially strongest city, that's going to say we shouldn't be giving anything to a big company. But I think for good reason, the that kind of sentiment in cities such as Chicago, which are not doing well financially, that kind of sentiment is even stronger and uh, may, may restrain those cities from offering as good a package as the Austins of the world to pick them out of the hat. Yeah, well, call me skeptical for now, but we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Um, we'll definitely be following it. There's definitely a lot of interest in what Amazon is going to do with this in terms of placing the second headquarters. But why don't we move on to a, a perennial kind of topic for us, Puerto Rico. Uh, Mary Ellen, give us an update on the, the fiscal side. Uh, there's a couple of things going on with fiscal plans in the community disaster loans. Thanks, Paul. The, the couple things that are going on are delays and more delays. So the fiscal plans were supposed to be filed uh, late last week for the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, the Aqueduct and Sewer Authority, and the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. Um, as we talked about last time, the Commonwealth fiscal plan can be much bigger than just the general fund. It's inclu- last time it included the, um, the university, the sales tax financing corporation, etc. Anyway, those were all due last week, and the deadline has been extended to January 24th. So we look forward to reading those, I guess, in about a week. Um, There wasn't really a whole lot of explanation given by the Oversight Board or the government for the delay. I guess that's not totally surprising. 
Yeah, it just seems like a lot of work to do in a place with intermittent power. That's Fair it. enough. <laughs> uh, and then the delay on the, the federal government side, there's a cash balance pol- policy that will need to be endorsed by the Puerto Rico government and the Financial Oversight and Management Board before there will be any funds distributed, these community disaster funds that Puerto Rico has been waiting on. And we've been talking about um, on and off, I would say, for the last month and a half. The federal government is saying that Puerto Rico has too much liquidity, so it will need to use some of its own money to help keep the Aqueduct and Sewer Authority, along with the Electric Power Authority, in the black. And then when it's drawn that down in... um, in a way that's consistent with this cash balance policy that the government is supposed to be working on with the board, then the federal government will begin to consider when it will be allocating those funds. Um, we had a story out today that we worked on about what what the federal government might be looking at to back those monies and whether it might be a COFINA-type pledge or a GEO pledge. This is all really fascinating to me because the backdrop here is what percentage of the island in terms of customers have electricity now? What is it, like 60, 65%? That sounds about right. And meanwhile, there's this whole thing about they have too much money, but what, Hurricane uh, Maria was back in September, what, September 20th? It's, as we're taping, January 18th. There's still probably 35 to 40% of customers that don't have electricity, which seems to suggest that this is a disaster and an emergency, but it's just, it's, it's, it's just weird to see how, you know, to watch all of this play out as a significant part of the island does not have electricity. Yeah, it just seems like there's... It seems like there's no way Puerto Rico wouldn't be experiencing some sort of liquidity difficulty because they couldn't collect the sales and use tax for so long, which is so much of their tax revenue. And clearly, with PREPA being almost literally 100% out of service for a while, obviously there were no electric revenues coming in. And the governor just said that, uh, just mandated that PREPA cannot collect for any electricity that was not delivered. So, and the all these things don't seem to be adding up. To no, me. no, it's, as usual, Puerto Rico and its many borrowing entities, it's very difficult to figure out. Hmm. Okay, well, but there's other news going on related to Puerto Rico. What's the latest with one of the bond insurers involved with the island, uh, Mary Ellen National slash their parent company as well, MBIA? Yeah, so. One thing that a few of my sources had mentioned to me and was in the court filings is that National had asked for discovery from Puerto Rico's Government Development Bank. Um, well, one thing I should have said, it's National Public Finance Guarantee Corporation, just so everybody knows what we're referring to. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Because uh, you're right. I would have totally continued repeating National. Um, so... National insures some bonds backed by the Puerto Rico Highway and Transportation Authority, and National is alleging that there's some um, maybe impropriety at the GDB 
regarding how it's been holding the funds that back the PRHTA bonds. So that'll be pretty interesting. Those bonds, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, they haven't been being paid on and the money's been sitting in an, in an escrow fund, so to speak, um, while it's determined who should really have the first right on those monies, whether or not they should go to bondholders or the Commonwealth for providing essential services. That sounds about right. Um, great. And coincident with that filing, Moody's downgraded both MBIA and National Public Finance Guarantee on, among other things, an increased probability of more severe losses uh, resulting from the revenue disruptions caused by Hurricane Maria. So that stress is certainly working its way up to the insurers, even though the federal government doesn't um, think that it's enough to provide money yet. Again, all of this stuff confuses me because Puerto Rico has always been an island. There's always been this potential risk. Uh, and, you know, National hasn't been doing new business in a while. So I guess it was curious just to see why they got upgraded when you look at the reasons why they got downgraded and it just... I don't know. I, I guess what you see. You could have predicted this. I guess what you see with Puerto Rico to a degree is that, uh, and, and as Mary Ellen said, it extends into things like the insurers. Um, you have different actors who are seeking different things. Uh, Moody's wanted to lower national because of uh, everything that Mary Ellen mentioned. The feds want to make sure that certain criteria are met. Uh, the Commonwealth is, I would guess, is making the case that uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to withhold monies because of cash balances when they're clearly in pretty dire financial straits to the point of service reductions and bond defaults. Uh, so you, I, I think that's part of part of the problem is is that you have a lot of different entities who have different goals here. Yeah, and it's going to be really challenging to try to to fix all of this. But why don't we move on back to the mainland? Another credit uh, that's been under some stress for a while in the Midwest, Chicago. Greg, tell us a little bit more uh, about what's been going on lately with them. Chicago last year created a new bankruptcy remote entity called the Sales Tax Securitization Corporation, and I'll call it the STSC uh, because I like acronyms. <laughs> In any event, they had a very successful bond issue last December. They planned another one for January earlier this month, and the sale was postponed. Uh, the city and its banker, I think, uh, the city anyway, are saying that it's due to the fact to, that they need to offer some some different types of structures and uh, taxability features for their investors. There's also the uh, the question or the the theory that the backloading of the bond issue, in other words, putting principal maturities in much later years as opposed to earlier years, uh, might have caused some investors some concern. And of course, uh, 
a related theory is that the reason the city did that was because they have some big pension payments coming up in the next few years. And by deferring maturities on the STSC issue, they were able to uh, leave some room open for those big pension payments that are coming up in the 20s and 30s. So when you when you get down to it, uh, it's you know it's it's hard with with any troubled issuer such as Chicago uh, to isolate one thing. You know here they they create a diff, they they create a new entity to refinance some of their general obligation debt. And they still need to consider pensions and, and other factors in, in that. So that's some of the things and some of the theories that are going on about, the, about Chicago and its sales tax bonds. Yes, the iron or airtight uh, structure. Um, I guess we'll see how that plays itself out. Um, but let's keep, continue on in the Midwest, uh, Greg, with uh, Detroit. They had some news this week. Yeah, Detroit, uh, the state treasurer said that the city may be able to exit financial oversight if they, prove, if they show that they, hit, that they ran a surplus in fiscal year 17, which ended on June 30th of 17. If they did run a surplus, that will be their third consecutive surplus, which will mean that... Uh, they will have a very strong case for being removed from state oversight. And of course, they exited their bankruptcy in, I think it was 2015, 2016, one, one or the other. Uh, so the, um, the, uh, the topic here is that, uh, or the question here is, this is obviously a good sign for Detroit, but they still are going to have some pretty big problems. They, they have, uh, obviously, a, a city that still is, the economic, economic base there is still not real strong. There have been some pockets of economic development, but they are, I think it's safe to say, far from being out of the woods as far as economic development and, and uh, showing a long history of balanced financial operations. I hope that's the case. Um, but the removal of the state oversight board is not necessarily a guarantee that they're out of the woods. It's it's a good sign, but it's not a guarantee. All right, and, and while we close it out with a discussion on our latest hospital watch report, Greg, what did we find? One of the things we found, Paul, was that there's been an uptick in hospital special district bankruptcies. Traditionally, those bankruptcies have only been one-fifth of muni bankruptcies, but it's picked up in 2017. It was over half, and there's been one filing so far in 2018. I should step back a bit because this is a kind of niche governmental entity that a lot of our listeners may not be knowledgeable about. Uh, and I'll start by describing very in very broad strokes the hospital industry in the U.S., You've got for-profit hospitals. You've got non-profit hospitals, which are the ones most people know about. The St. Barnabas, the St. Joseph, the Jewish hospital in certain cities, uh, the children's hospitals that are in just about every big city. Those are all non-profit hospitals. And then you have municipally owned hospitals. The first type of municipally owned hospital is the uh, 
one a, a hospital system, for instance, that's actually owned by a general purpose government, which does many different things. For instance, in New York, you've got the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation, which runs, I forget how many hospitals in the in at least four boroughs, maybe five. I think there's at least 11 hospitals. They have other facilities as well. And then finally, another type of publicly owned hospital is a special district hospital. These are, these are somewhat common in California. And they, are, they exist in other states as well, though. They're not unique to California. They are local governments that were established with the, with the specific intent to build and then operate a hospital. So they tend to be located in rural areas, and the reason they were set up is because they were underserved areas. They weren't places that were attractive for, for a for-profit or even for a non-profit hospital. And they didn't have big cities, so there was, there was no big city to set up a public hospital. So that's, that's why these places exist. And they rely not only on patient revenues from Medicare and Medicaid and private insurers, such as Aetna, Cigna, or whoever, they also get property tax revenue. And the, uh, they've been, they, ha- they usually have pretty small revenue bases because they, they serve smaller populations. So they're more subject to changes in federal and state and insurer reimbursement. You know, if, if you've got $100 million in revenues, let's say Hospital X, you have a little bit more flexibility in how you prepare for that and in terms of what you can do with your staffing, that kind of thing. These places don't have that kind of luxury. So when there are changes in federal and state reimbursement especially, and we all know that there's been a lot of changes both ways in terms of that kind of thing in the last 8, 10 years, they're hit a little bit harder. And, of course, they can sometimes raise property taxes, but sometimes they have property tax limits that prohibit them from raising property taxes for operations uh, beyond a certain point. And also there's political and economic considerations as well. So that's why you're seeing more of these places um, in trouble. And, again, if it is a hospital, if, if you're a hospital in a populous area, you're more likely to find a buyer who will pick you up and maybe um, reform your financial operations and other practices. But these are places that have already shown themselves to be in areas that are underserved, and they're not, they're not big targets for profit uh, or not-for-profit hospitals. So they're in a bind, and I think it's a pretty safe prediction to, to say that you'll see some continuing levels of default by these hospital districts, which file Chapter 9 because they are municipalities, and legally they're municipalities. Well, thanks a lot, Greg. Thank you, Mary Ellen, and thank all of you for listening to our latest edition of the Muni Lowdown. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Paul.